Hi, this is Mo Maduro with the Life Expansion After 50 podcast. Today we're talking about cognitive biases, confirmation bias, and the planning fallacy. Both of these can lead to resistance, friction, and entropy. You see, energy can be in the form of resources and also resourcefulness because we can harness and reuse energy. But when we're unresourceful, it's difficult to hold on to your vision, let alone do the work that's necessary to attain it. And there's so much written on what to do to achieve our objectives, but people continue to get stuck. See, priming plays in our conditioning, and often we don't even know what we've been conditioned to believe. Again, a lot of this happens between the ages of zero to seven. Now, confirmation bias, I earlier talked about this as the three, hearing three undeniable truths and then automatically believing the fourth one and seeing that as such a trusted source that it would take 11 iterations of untruthful information before you start to doubt that source. Now, these are general uh, numbers, the averages, so each person is going to be different. But again, I use this in the context to explain why conspiracy theories can take off the way they do. But now, I'll talk about confirmation bias in more of the traditional way. It's the tendency to favor information that confirms existing beliefs while ignoring contradictory evidence. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone who's arguing for their weaknesses, you've probably seen confirmation bias in action. It's confirmation bias at work when someone says they can't find their glasses and they're right on the top of their head, or they can't find their keys and they're in the hand, or they can't find the salt and it's in the cabinet in front of them. You may have also heard, heard of medical student syndrome. This is where medical students consistently come down with the ailments of the particular diseases that they're studying. Another one that's kind of interesting, there was a, some time ago, there's some rumor that Harley-Davidson motorcycle company is going to buy BMW motorcycles. It's interesting because if you did a search about Harley-Davidson buying BMW, there's a page of search results. But if you did a search of Harley-Davidson investments or Harley-Davidson subsidiaries, things like that, BMW didn't show up at all. The point being, there was enough people searching on Harley-Davidson buying BMW that it started filling up search pages. Now, take that in the context of a conspiracy theory. If somebody's actively putting content out there and using some good SEO, you can see how it can take off. Now, before I go further, I want to quickly revisit the last episode and talk a little bit more about the placebo. Because last week, last episode, we focused on the nocebo. But the placebo is, is a very powerful tool. Now, you may have thought, well, this doesn't apply to me. I don't take prescription drugs. I just, I know it's a way that they test the drugs. But, you know, those people, maybe they're susceptible to hypnotic trances or whatever. But here's the deal. This has been peer-reviewed, and by the way, this study, you can find out more about it in Bruce Lipton's book, Biology of Belief, and he does a good job of citing his research sources, and he's been out there preaching this content since the 1960s. It's just that it's very hard to, to, to get traction on it because you would have to rewrite so many of the medical books. It's just difficult to get, it's been difficult to get traction on it, but if you think about the placebo, in a way that you can use it to help yourself with your objectives. This has been peer-reviewed. They've been able to replicate the research that gene expression can be altered with your thought. This is epigenetics. So until several decades ago, it was believed that the genes you're born with came from your parents and those are the ones you're going to die with. What they've since learned is that genes actually change their expression 
based on the environment. And you can change your internal environment with thought and with conditioning. When you look at it that way, it makes sense to lean into and understand more about the placebo because one, you can actually heal yourself, but also you can create the internal environment that's going to help you with other objectives, whether it's anti-aging. I referenced before the studies about where the DNA, the telomeres on the ends of the DNA, these, these telomeres actually get shorter with age, but these telomeres lengthened during this study where they had people surrounded by memorabilia and content from 20 years earlier. And it changed how they walked. It changed how they thought. Think about it in the way of the same way we want to avoid having nocebos because they can hurt us. We want to look at how can we use this placebo effect to help us. This is why I did the episode on the woo-woo gap, because I want to start bringing this stuff into our our ability to actually access it. And the other side of the woo-woo gap is that there's a direct correlation between stress and our feeling that we're not in control of what happens. If we're putting things off to the universe, that the universe is doing it, that's not in your control. And while I have no issue with with, with the spiritual realm and believing in miracles and those things, what I'm talking about are the things that are actually in our control, attributing them to the universe. Because now sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and you don't know why. But when you understand that you can actually change your internal environment, which can have the placebo effect working for you, it's a game changer. So on the confirmation bias, just like the person can't find the keys, it blocks one's awareness of what's going on if it's contradictory. And it highlights your awareness of the things that confirm what you're already thinking. At its worst, you can see where a person is, I mentioned arguing for their weaknesses, but they could also argue for the opposition. And another place, I wanna, I've mentioned it already, but I want to kind of highlight this one. I talked about people arguing for their weaknesses, and that's kind of easy to spot. As a coach, you spot that pretty easily. But there's a corollary where people will argue for the opposition. The effect is the same. They're saying that the opposition is so big, so great, that there's no possible way that they can prevail. And it has the same effect. And then when confirmation bias kicks in, they resist any contradictory information to show that they do have the ability or that the opposition is not really all that they're saying it is. And at its worst, these people want to fight you. And and there's so much intensity, can be so much intensity in in their statement, in their narrative that they're reinforcing their conditioning, which is a bad thing because the next time it comes up, they're going to have even a stronger response to it. They're making, they're basically wrapping those neural pathways with myelin. And as you recall, myelin helps those neural pathways fire faster, more accuracy with more precision and in a stronger way. The countermeasure for mitigating the effect of cognitive biases comes down to three steps that you, you want to take. Mindfulness and breathing. Taking deep breaths will reduce your anxiety and help you to be present in the present moment, which can dampen the conditioned response. You can also notice it a little bit better. Another one is pausing and noticing the initial reaction and then recognizing that it's just one data point, consciously recognizing that it's just one data point. And the topic in question is important enough that you should do some more research, get another data point or two before landing on your point of view. So again, 
you're using a mindfulness and breathing to get that pause. And then with that pause, you're acknowledging that it's just a data point. So what you're doing is mitigating and you're stopping that cognitive bias in its tracks because essentially what it is is prime. It's priming. It's priming your unconscious to fire off a stimulus response that's already there. The objective is to spend some time in self-reflection and actively seek out objective points of view rather than going with the first impulse. You can also ask yourself a series of questions along the lines of, is there any evidence to support this belief or perception? Am I making assumptions or generalizations without considering other possibilities? Am I seeking out information that challenges my current beliefs or am I only looking for information that confirms what I already think? Now, especially with the confirmation bias, I like to study the other person's position like I'm preparing to take their side in a debate. When you can argue the opposing position better than they can, you're in a very good place to assess which position you want as your point of view. I got this from a book, How to Argue and Win Every Time by Jerry Spence. Now, he was called one of the winningest lawyers of all times. I thought that this book was going to give me some great ways to debate and come up with some arguments. And I was, you know, sales management. I was thinking I could maybe use that for handling objections, etc. It turns out that the book is all about learning to argue the other person's point of view. Now, in the courtroom, what he, what he was doing was he would get to argue their point of view so well that he was a master at coming up with win-win settlements that they bought happily because they were getting what they wanted. By arguing their point of view or learning to argue their point of view, he understood their true desires, what they, what they wanted in their heart, and he was able to give that to them and get win-win settlements. So while it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, it certainly helped me because, especially in business, when you have, like I talk about the Myers-Briggs and the N and the S, when you can argue the other person's point of view, I'm an N, and if you can argue the S's point of view, it's much easier to frame the, the case that you're talking about or the proposal because now you understand where they're coming from and you can present it to them in the way that they're going to understand it because this is not about winning. It's about getting to the truth. And when you approach it that way, as I said before, if you disagree with me, then I disagree with me until we figure out who's missing information. It's not about winning the argument. It's about getting to the truth. It's about coming up with a point of view that I can stand, stand behind and I know is going to stand the test of time. The second cognitive bias I want to talk about is the planning fallacy. Now, this one first came to my attention when I was studying about willpower. It shows up in the willpower experiments because they consistently see where people will miss their objectives this week, but double down and, and commit to doing twice as much next week, even when presented with the fact that they just missed their projection this week already. They've already missed their projection. And then in the third week, they double down again and when, when reminded that they've missed their projection two weeks in a row, it's still, it'll be different next week. It's going to be easier. Uh, or I have this working for me or that going for me. This is a real challenge. And it's, it's especially problematic in creation goals or creation projects. I think it's less so in operational ones because there's less unknown. It's demor it can be demoralizing. When you're going after your vision or, or after a big objective and you keep missing your projections and you think you're making these projections realistically, it could get you to feel like you don't have what it takes, that these things aren't available to you. 
when in reality, a creation goal or a creation project actually is much harder than an operational one because you're creating. And if you're creating, you're relying less on habit and using more of the conscious mind. And the conscious mind, that's upping your metabolism. And you literally run out of brain glycogen as you're doing that. The planning fallacy can lead to project overruns. I, as I said, I find it more prevalent with creation projects than operational ones. If you're a leader involved with project leadership, you want to be aware of the tendency to overestimate what can be done. Because if you go with these projections and don't discount them or don't challenge them, you end up with you, you potentially end up with what we call a death march project where everybody knows it's going to fail. They know they're not going to make the dates, but they're too afraid to come and talk about it. The other thing that I've seen happen on technology projects, and in, in some respects, it turns out to be a good thing over time, but usually on that project is not. And this is where they take existing code off the shelf and they try attempt to reuse it. It's getting better now, more and more widgets, et cetera. They're able to have things packaged better. But in the past, they would take the software off the shelf. And of course, there's going to be some something that doesn't align, some security package in there, something that's go, uh, going on that's going to cause the bigger project to fail. And then they spend so much time looking for it. But it all comes down to you want to get to the point where you're doing more realistic planning so that people are not getting demoralized. Or if you're working on your own stuff, that you're not being demoralized and you're patient with yourself. And this is why people tend to overestimate what they can do in a year but underestimate what they can do in a decade. So this planning fallacy, while it's a liability early on, you actually get the reverse effect when you're looking at longer term. Because if you give yourself five to 10 years, you can actually accomplish a lot more than you think you can, which is the power of why the power of 10x is so, it's so great. Because when you 10x your goals, you are willing to do more to achieve it. And that willingness to do more pulls some of those big, big goals closer to you, especially when you're giving yourself five to 10 years. Another thing you can do to help mitigate the planning fallacy besides discounting it is focus on doing the 80% that takes 20% of the time. One of the challenges with projects, if you think about it linearly, you're, you're thinking, well, I should be 50% through by 50% of the time. But that's not true because 80% of that project is going to take you 20% of the time. And then the 20% tends to get left over at the end, and now it's going to take you 80% of the time, and you have less than 50% of the time available to do it. So by, by going after the 80% first, and then you take that last 20% that's left, and you do it again. You make that 20% 100%, and you go after the 80% of that that's going to take 20% of the time, and you keep going at it that way. It's, it's sort of a way of doing iterative development as well. I think it aligns with Agile. You're going to keep learning along the way and not fall into some of those traps that people do with creation projects. Again, the countermeasure is to see the objective data points. Uh, this one is e easily overlooked because the confirmation bias is going to prevent you. As I said, people are faced with, they're presented with the data that says, hey, you haven't made your projections two weeks in a row. You sure you want to go with that aggressive projection? And the people say, oh, absolutely, it'll work this time, it'll be better. And you're sitting there dumbfounded because you don't understand uh, how they could possibly not see it, but it's the confirmation bias kicking in. And when they're in it, it's very difficult. But if you can talk about these things as a leader, if you're a le as a leader, you can talk about your team about these things so people spot them. So then when it's happening, they can spot it. 
The whole thing is, the quick review is this. The unconscious processes at 11 million bits per second. The conscious mind processes at only 50 bits per second. Conscious mind has a reaction time of anywhere from two-tenths to seven-tenths of a second. And so by two-tenths of a second, the unconscious has already processed 11, uh, 2 million bits of information, potentially. And that's where that cognitive bias is basically priming you to go down a certain path. You're already primed. So what we have to do is create a pause and a delay. And what's interesting, when you look at executives that people in the corporation, oh yeah, so-and-so, he's very, very smart. If you notice what they do, they tend to pause a lot. They get a question and they pause. And, and they're not the first ones to speak. They listen. A lot of times in, when there's a discussion going on, they will listen because they're able to engage their conscious mind with that rather than the knee-jerk, whereas most people are reacting out of the unconscious and they don't realize it's the unconscious because they think of the unconscious as part of their mind. They're not realizing that all they're doing is reacting with regurgitation from past experiences. So the reason I bring that up is you will seem smarter if you do nothing else but just pause and look for objective data points in addition to the one that you got from your unconscious, the immediate one that came in, and recognizing that that first one that comes in is based on the past. And if you're creating something in the future, it's probably not going to be right. So in, in the book Unlimited Power by Tony Robbins, he, he talks about metaprograms, and metaprograms start to get to this. But I want to use cognitive biases because there's enough of them we can talk about. And as you start to spot them and can talk about them, even if you don't remember all the details, like I said before, being aware that there's something like that going on, it puts us in a place where we can actually manage it, especially if you're a leader, because you, then you can have that conversation and people say, oh, yeah, that's right. And that's what you want to do is getting people looking at it more objectively. And then once you do that, you'll find that it's easier for people to come up with a point of view because they're not fighting against their unconscious, which they don't understand. We'll continue the cognitive bias topics next time. We'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.